0: Morning. Uh, what would you say makes you cry? Uh, some of you can't make it through uh, one day without crying. Like, you watch uh, cat videos on YouTube, and you just cry. That's just, that's how God made you. Uh, for others of you, it takes a lot. I used to always say that, uh, you know, I, m- I maybe cry uh, uh, once a year, but I feel like as I've gotten older that the Lord is really working on my heart, so I've, I've now officially upped that to twice a year is uh, that's my quota. Uh what, Thank you. Uh, what would you say makes you, makes you cry? I, I mean, a lot of times we cry because of our own hardships, our own difficulties. I, I guess even more specifically, I, I would want to ask you, uh, what would make you cry for other people? Like, would you ever look at someone else's situation and be so moved for them that it would move you to tears? Uh, this morning, as we sort of study God's word together, my prayer is that it shows you whom you should be crying for. Uh, We are actually starting a brand new series this morning, so I'm glad that you're here. Uh, We're starting a series on the book of Nehemiah uh, in the Old Testament, specifically on chapters one through four. So we're just going to take four weeks and look at each of those uh, four chapters. Now, if you've never read the book of uh, Nehemiah before, uh, Nehemiah is famous, as you might have guessed from the series name, for being a builder. Uh, He's the one that went back to Jerusalem. Oh, sorry, I'm spoiling the whole book right now. Uh, and he, he famously helped build the walls around Jerusalem again. Uh, Nehemiah, if you've never read it, it's a fairly short book in the Bible. If you haven't read the Bible in a while, or maybe you're looking for like, ah, where do I get back into it? I just want to encourage you, to start reading the book of Nehemiah this week. There you go. Now you have uh, something... To read. Uh, before we dive into the book, I just want to give you some background uh, on it, uh, kind of when this all happens in history, kind of the larger context of the biblical story. Uh, I recognize that many of you in this room are new to your faith, or some of you are just even checking Jesus out uh, for the first time, so I kind of want to zoom us out before we just zoom in to chapter one this morning. Okay, so the Old Testament, that's the first sort of two-thirds of the Bible, it focuses on the story of, of God's people, of the Israelites, And then eventually, sort of a a subsection of them, uh, which is uh, the Jews. So God brings them uh, to the promised land, which eventually will become Israel. But over the centuries, uh, God's people they become uh, unfaithful to God, and they they start worshiping and praying to false gods, and they start engaging in all sorts of wickedness. And so God, like He promised He would, He sends somebody to uh, punish them. And God sends Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon and he captures the people of Judah, the Jews, and he begins to exile the majority of them to Babylon. Now, I just mentioned a bunch of towns, so it just feels right to me that we look at a map. Okay, all right, amen. Uh, Thank you, the cute map. Okay, and I brought this, which is also really helpful. Okay, I think these words are... Can you read these words? Is it too small. Uh, Thank you for your Minnesotan, like...
1: That means nothing to me.
0: (laughs) Anyway, you can... Front row is great. Now, that should teach you to sit in the front row. Okay. (laughs) Now, uh, at least you can see your basic geography. This is Turkey, right? Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia. So over here is Israel. This is where the people were in Jerusalem. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is going to come over from here in Babylon. They're going to go across, which in geography is called the Fertile Crescent. You don't cross this. This is desert. He's going to take the people from Jerusalem, exile them to his kingdom in Babylon. And he kind of does it in stages. And the last stage happens in the year 586 B.C. So this is 586 years before Jesus, before we switch over to the A.D. calendar. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes in 586 B.C., he destroys the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon originally built, and he destroys the walls around the city of Jerusalem. So most of the people are exiled all the way over to uh, Babylon. Now, uh, 48 years after that, Along comes Cyrus the Great. Now, that's an incredible name. Uh, Cyrus the Great is the king of Persia. And the Persians and the Medes, they come and they conquer a Babylon. And one of the first things that Cyrus the Great does as king is he says, all right, all of you exiled people that Nebuchadnezzar kind of stole from all these different lands in the area, you can all, you can all go home. He was from Texas, apparently, right? You all go home, <laughs> right? And he says... You can go. And some of the Jews begin to go home. In fact, 50,000 of them under Zerubbabel leave Babylon and they go back to Jerusalem. But in history, we know that the vast majority of them actually stayed. They stayed in Babylon. They stayed in what was then now the kingdom of Persia. Well, why would they do that? They did that because, well, that's where they were born. It had been so long for most of them, that's all they really knew. And so they stayed. And there's plenty of examples of this. In fact, Esther is a good example of this. If you ever read Esther in the Old Testament, which is a great book, uh, Esther, in 478 BC, even though she's a Jew, Esther becomes a wife of the king of Persia, and she marries King Xerxes. Well, Xerxes has a son named Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes has a really important servant, in fact, his cupbearer, and his cupbearer is named... Nehemiah. All right, we made it there. Okay, there's a a Bible under every chair. I would love for you to follow along as we study uh, chapter one, so go ahead and pick that up. Uh, We're on page 383. Uh, If you prefer electronics, you can use your phone. There's a Bible app, a renovation church app. Uh, You just uh, uh, tap Bible and weekly verses, you'll be able to follow along. So page 383. So the book of Nehemiah starts off in the year 445 B.C., so It's actually been 141 years since the walls of Jerusalem were knocked down by Nebuchadnezzar. And it's actually even been 93 years since the Jews were allowed and had the freedom to go back to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, he's serving King Artaxerxes, and he's actually, can I get the map back up there for a second? He's actually um, in the town of Susa, which is right here. This is actually in modern-day Iran. So the Iran-Iraq border is basically like right here. So he is a world away from Jerusalem, but his brother is going to come from Jerusalem with news. So let's check it out. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll start right at verse 1. Here's what it says. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, and now he's actually going to be quoting parts of the Old Testament. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, which is going to be the king. And he says, I was cupbearer to the king. Okay, so that's chapter one, which is what we're looking at today. So let's talk about this. Uh, Nehemiah's brother comes all the way from Jerusalem. This would have been an enormous journey in those days to what was mod- what is modern day Iran. He's in Susa, which in those days was Persia. And you look at if you have it in front of you so you look at verse 2. Nehemiah, one of the first things he does is he begins to question like oh, what's it like in Jerusalem? Right, because Jerusalem is the city of his ancestors. It's, it's the most important city in the world to the Jewish people. Right? It's where the temple is. It's where God says he's going to put his name. And when Nehemiah's brother gives him the news, he says, it's awful. It's awful in Jerusalem. The walls are still down. The gates were burned. It's a, the people are in a terrible condition. We see that Nehemiah, he hears the news, and then he has no strength in his legs. He has to sit down. And then we're told that he begins to weep. It doesn't say that he shed a tear. It doesn't say that he got misty-eyed. This powerful man begins to weep. In fact, he begins this period of mourning where he actually begins to fast. If you don't know that word, it's just basically it's abstaining from eating while you're dedicating yourself to prayer. And Nehemiah cries tears for his city, for his people. The lack of the walls around Jerusalem are heavy on his heart. See, in in those days, in the ancient days, any city that didn't have a wall around it, especially a big, important city like Jerusalem, was incredibly vulnerable to its enemies, right? Because anybody could just walk right in. And now you have God's people are back in the city. In fact, by this time, they've actually rebuilt the temple which is so important, but there's no way to protect it because there are no walls. And Nehemiah is just broken up about it. And he cries tears for his city. And I would ask you this morning, what about your city? How do you feel about it? What about Blaine? Now, I know many of you come from Coon Rapids or Andover or Ham Lake, but the majority of you live here in Blaine, what about it? How do you feel about it? You know, we know, we say this often, I feel like I say this once a month, 85% of people in Blaine aren't in church on an average Sunday. And, you know, that's a percentage that was significantly lower 25, 30 years ago. Let's just take some conservative math on this. Okay, let's say that 70% of the people in Blaine don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. So we know that the population of the city is now 65,000. 70% of 65,000 is just over 45,000. And if we believe what the Bible teaches, which it teaches so clearly, if we believe what the Word of God actually says, then that means that 45,000 people in our city, the people that live next door to us, the people that we work with, the people whose kids play on the same soccer team as our kids, 45,000 of them will have a Christless eternity, and they will suffer in hell for all of eternity. And for most of us, that statement doesn't do that much. It doesn't do enough. Right? Except maybe, maybe you wish I didn't say it, right? Because it sort of makes us uncomfortable. But I would say to you this morning... If God's Holy Spirit gets a hold of your heart, if you could look 100 years into the future, if you could see into eternity, I promise you, I promise you, you would weep like Nehemiah. If we could even for five minutes see our friends, see our coworkers actually in agony in hell, if we could see them, saying like the rich man in Luke 16, saying, if only if only someone would come back from the dead and tell people about this place. If we could see it, even for a second, if you could see it, you would weep. We would weep over their lostness. We would weep over the fact that we just choose not to think about those things because, quite frankly, they're just uncomfortable to think about. We would weep over the fact that we don't think about those things. Well, because, quite honestly, we just have so many other crazy important things going on in our lives. But look at the word, look at chapter 1. I would say, was Nehemiah's job not important? Because couldn't he have said the same thing? Like, oh, well, yes, everybody's in a really sad state, but listen, what i got here is really important. And that would have been true. He was cupbearer to the king. Now, that may sound like kind of a menial job to us, but in in the ancient world, it is one of the most important jobs. The cupbearer, it was their responsibility to make sure that the king wasn't poisoned. And so the king would only give this job to the most moral and the most trustworthy person In his entire kingdom. And Nehemiah had that position as an exile. He wasn't Persian. And he wasn't just serving any king. He was serving Artaxerxes. In the year 445 BC, as the king of Persia, Artaxerxes actually would have been the most powerful man on the face of the planet. Like, couldn't Nehemiah have said I don't. yeah, I get it, Jerusalem, it's not, it's not really good, it's kind of in a sad state, but listen, I, I've got a really important job and I've got important things to do. He could have said that, right? But when God gets a hold of your heart, you kind of just stop doing all your stuff and living your life and you say, God, get a hold of my heart. He will move your heart off of yourself and onto his people every time. We're going to see this in the next couple chapters that God is going to do something great through Nehemiah through this building project. But first, God did something in Nehemiah. And I will just tell you, just biblical principle here, it will always be the same in your life. God will never do something great through you until you first let him do something great in you. Okay, this is why chapter 1 is really important. We could have just skipped right to chapter 2 where they actually start building the wall and they're building for God. But the wall, the wall building didn't begin with the mixing of cement, it began when the Lord got a hold of somebody's heart. Will you let God get a hold of your heart for lost people? Do you know what God could do with this church if we each individually let God get a hold of our hearts for people who are lost and not saved? It would blow your mind. I will tell you, we would see revival in this city if we would each let God do that. My question for you today is, will you ask Will you ask God to break your heart for your city? God is reaching a lot of people for Christ through this church, but honestly, there are 45,000 lost people. We're not even making a dent. That's one of the reasons we believe so much in church planning, because we can't do it all. There's an incredible amount of work to be done. And these are real people, not just numbers. It just really hit my heart anew this week. Uh, Over the past... Two weeks, our our house groups uh, have been taking part in Provide. Uh, If you've never heard of that before, Provide is a ministry that we started uh, in our church. And basically, we bring uh, groceries, we bring personal care items and home-cooked meals to people in Blaine, in Coon Rapids, in Andover, in our surrounding areas, that they're just really hurting. Life has just kind of hit them, blindsided them, and they're in a tough spot. And we come and we just provide for them in that moment. We just we home-deliver to their house. And so our church delivered to 27 different homes over the past two weeks, and we'll do 27 more homes in the spring. And as I went out, I went out with the house group that I attended. It just hit me anew of is it just real people with real needs. Now, many of you uh, came to me this week and told me, or you sent me an email, or one of our staff members an email, and you just told stories of we went out We provided this home-cooked meal and groceries and what they needed. And person after person came back to us and they said, where is this church? How do I get there? In fact, I would guess with that many people, some of you are maybe here this morning because somebody brought something to you this week. And I would just tell you we're doing that because that's the love of Jesus in us, and it's real. But church, those of you who have been here for a long time... We've got to do this for people all over the city. We need to reach them with the good news of Jesus. People are hurting, and we can bring the light. But if you want God to do something through you, you first have to let him do something in you, and you have to say in prayer, God, will you break my heart for this city? One of the things that jumped out at me this week for the first time as I was studying Nehemiah again, is I was looking at this, and I was kind of looking at the dates, and it just hit me, and I thought... Okay, it's not like Nehemiah didn't know that the walls were broken down. It's not new information for him. In fact, they've been broken down for 141 years. So what's the difference? Like, what's happening? And it's not like all of us in this room don't know that if people don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, then they can't be saved. We, we know that, but it's not moving us to action. Like, what's the difference? Nehemiah is moved when he just lets God into his heart, and he begins to see it as God sees it. Do you see it? Do you see the need in your city? I would just say this. Behind all of its suburban siding, I think our city is crumbling. What's the culture, right? Marriages are dissolving daily, Domestic abuse is happening, but it's hidden in our suburban culture. Uh, Kids are growing up in an incredibly confused world, right? Their parents aren't married or they don't live together or there's divorce. There are no norms anymore of what society should look like. There's no norms on sex or gender or morals or just what your basic purpose is or direction. It's incredibly dizzying to children and adolescents. And as a result of that, suicide rates, even at our local high schools, are rising fast. And we have the answer. That ought to mess with you. If it doesn't, something is wrong. We have the answer, and his name is Jesus. People don't have to feel lost. They don't have to struggle like this. They can be surrounded by a community like we have in our house groups. They can know Jesus. They can know his love. They can know his forgiveness. They can know his purpose. And listen, I know sometimes when we talk about lost people, we talk about crisis, you know, and marriages are falling apart and and suicide. But sometimes people aren't In a crisis? Most people that don't know Jesus actually aren't in a crisis right now. But it doesn't mean that they don't feel lost. I mean, just this week, we had yet another person in our church surrender their life to Christ. Uh, This time it happened in one of our house groups. Uh, This woman had been invited to our church to hear about Jesus by one of our people. That's how it should work. And she just kept coming over the last 10, 11 months and just kept seeking God. And after months of feeling darkness, just pulling her down for no discernible reason, this week in house groups, she accepted Christ. She surrendered her life to Christ. And I just want to say, there are thousands of people like that in our city, within a couple miles of here, looking for the same answer. We cannot hide this answer from people. We cannot keep it to ourselves. You know where I worry most for our city? It isn't in anything moral. I don't worry most for our city when I look out and I see, oh, I can't believe people are making these choices or how they're morally uh, behaving or what they're believing in. I worry because they're just like sheep without a shepherd, right? They don't know. I worry most for our city when I see how the Christians are responding to it, to change. Instead of weeping for lost people around them, Christians, I'm talking about people bearing the name of Jesus, saying, I look like Jesus. Christians are instead responding to lost people in a changing culture with anger and fear. And we don't see people like Jesus sees people. I hear Christians saying all the time now, they say, oh, the world is changing society culture it is crazy can you believe how people are acting you believe what people do in their families and can you it's just awful they say it's it's terrible society is ruining itself and we just oh i just but christians they're saying these words in anger in judgment they're saying them in fear but know this fear will push Christians to the fringes of society. But tears, not fear, tears will push us toward people like Jesus Christ was pushed toward people. My prayer as a pastor of this church is that that kind of talk, like, oh, look where society's going, it's just messed up, I just... My prayer is that would never, that would never be us. As the people of Renovation Church. That we wouldn't talk like that. That we would be people whose hearts are broken for this city. God will break your heart for the people around you. If you let him. Will you be like Christ... Christ walks into Jerusalem, and this is a messed up city. He doesn't look at Jerusalem and roll his eyes. He doesn't look at Jerusalem and say, oh, man, can you believe the culture? is just so messed up. Jesus Christ walks into Jerusalem, and here's what happens. This is Luke 19. It says, as he, Jesus, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept. He wept over it. This city was so far gone. You want to know what? They murdered him five days after he said those words. But he weeps over it. He weeps over it. It says, you read the rest of the passage, it says, because he's saying, I could have given you life. I could have given you life, but you're choosing destruction. And it just moved his heart that he just wept over it. It just brought him to tears. They could have had life. And he wept. That should be our heart. That should be our heart. And God can do that if that's our heart. He can reach people through us if that's our heart. It might not, and maybe you're thinking like, I don't know, like this, people are, the culture is shifting, it is changing, I I don't know. Look at the book of Nehemiah. God is about to do something amazing through a man who let his heart be broken for people. Even though Nehemiah is a world away, he doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any resources. He doesn't have any authority to do anything. But God's going to move. And here's why. Uh, There's a line in Nehemiah's prayer that I just love. Uh, Nehemiah is is where he was quoting what God once uh, told the Israelites through Moses. So he's speaking kind of as God's words here. So look again really closely at verse 9. Here's what it says. These are the words of God. It says, but if you return to me, as God's people, us... If you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. See, 2,500 years. 2,500 years ago, Susa would have felt like light years away from Jerusalem. It would have felt like the farthest horizon. And God is saying, if my people would just pray, if my people would obey me again, if they would trust my word again, if they would seek me again, I will do an amazing thing and I will bring my people back. Nothing is too hard for me. And God is saying the same thing to the exiled people the people who have walked away from him in our culture, the people that don't believe in him anymore, saying the same thing about our culture. And he is saying to you as a believer in Jesus, he's saying, do not look at the people around you and say, what is this world coming to? It is so messed up. It is crazy. It is too far gone. It is hopeless. It is not. It is not hopeless. The culture could be at the farthest horizon." And God could bring it back. And he does. You study in history, he does. And he does it when his people pray. He does it when his people pray, and when they obey him again, they trust him again, and they seek him again. One of the things you'll learn if you study the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah is going to engage in sort of four months of prayer here and just seeking God. It's only going to take them actually 52 days to build the wall. But he seeks God. He's letting God do something in him before he does something through him. And that's our heart, that God would break our hearts. If we want to see thousands come to Christ, then God has to break our hearts for the lost. You know, I think it's really important that you're here uh, over the next, say, three weeks. In the life of our church, we're kind of entering into what I believe will be an incredibly important season as we sort of propel God propels us into the next season of our church. So next week, in fact, we're going to talk a lot about our, our building that we're planning on building next year. Uh, we're going to show you like a video flyover and everything, and pictures and details, and just talk about what it's going to take for us to get there. I think it's going to be really, really memorable Sunday. I, as I look at this and I think out and I think about this every hour of the day, I think to the future. I just believe that we are on the cusp of a movement of God in the city. I see it. I see it when our people pray. And I think God is going to use this building to be a big part of that. And the building's a tool, right? It's just a larger space. But what I'm most encouraged about is the hearts. The hearts that I already see breaking. And we're praying for more of them. Because if you let God break your heart for your city, well, then God's going to move. And if you're here today and you're like, I get it, I intellectually understand that, I should care more about this, but honestly, David, I just don't. Then come and pray with us. And ask him to do it. Right? That's where it starts. Come on Wednesday, come to encounter. We're just going to beg God. God, break our hearts. May we not just come here and play church, but may we be the church. May we be the city on the hill. May we reach people for Christ. Come and pray with us. Over this next month, as we get into this important stuff in our church, come to our prayer meetings. We pray. There's a lot of us that pray every Sunday morning before every service. It starts 20 minutes before the service. We pray for 15 minutes. Come and pray and ask God to do this in your life. This is how we change the world. Okay, it isn't we come here on a Sunday morning and we put on some dazzling display or we entertain you with funny quips. We're never going to entertain someone to salvation. But when we seek God and the movement of God starts moving, then we're going to reach this city for Christ. Amen? It's going to happen. But it happens because it's the power of God. It's not our strength. It's not our ideas. It's the movement of God who people who set their hearts upon only what God can do. And God can do the impossible. Let's pray for that he does. It. Jesus, we, uh, we just ask for that, God. We ask that you would do the impossible in this city. It feels crazy to just ask, but we just know that you can, because you have done it. You've done it in history. You've done it in your word. When your people seek you, they pray, and they obey you. And may we be that. May the people, look at the pe- may people around us look at the people of Renovation Church and say they obey, they trust in their God. And they seek him. And they're reliant on him. And God, we we just worship you now. We want to run to you. We want the city to run to you. And just open up the floodgates in this town, God. In your name we pray. Amen.